Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We're champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Lungo, coming to your ears from NARM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's learn together. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Doing Well. And on this week's episode, we are going to talk about something that everyone who is currently working or you know looking to get into work might be interested to find out more about in the context of well-being which is genuine teamwork empowering well-being uh, i don't know about you but i'm personally really interested in this topic especially since i work with a very big team um, very diverse team and also very global and our guest today is going to be explained uh, explaining to us about you know the concept and why this is so important and how and the reason for that is going to be revealed in a little bit. I'll ask her to share why she wants to talk about this topic. And first of all, let's start with introduction. Today, we have in our studio Loretta G. Brinning, PhD, who is founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and Professor Emerita of Management at California State University, East Bay. She is the author of many professional development books, including Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. Thank you so much for joining us today, Loretta. How are you? Hi, great. Nice to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for making the time. I think it's pretty late where you are. Uh, no, it's actually um, just around uh, um, dinner time. Yeah, that is late uh, for a podcast Yesterday. recording, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, so but we it's appreciate your time. Yeah, it's not late at night, but still appreciate your time uh, for making the time to be here. I'm very curious now because, you know, I know your your background is, is quite, um, you know, focused on the brain and obviously, um, you know, lots of other areas that I think I, I kind of saw from your bio. Um, I would very much love for you to introduce a bit more about yourself and share your professional journey with our audience. You know, how you got to the doing the work that you're doing, um, why you chose to do the work that you did, um, you know, during your earlier days in your career as well. Sure. Okay. So today I study the animal brain and I write books about it that help people understand the animal brain that's inside all of us and how it motivates us with good feeling chemicals and bad feeling chemicals. And the animal part of our brain can't use language because animals don't speak. So we're always having good feelings and bad feelings turn on for reasons that we don't really understand. Our animal brain can't tell us in words why it feels good or bad. So I help people understand this. Mm. So and, and that builds your ability to manage it. Now, yeah. why I do this? So this is a second career for me, or you could possibly call it a fifth career or something. But um, when I was young, I was surrounded by a lot of unhappiness. So I was always very motivated to understand, like, what is everybody so upset about? And uh, then when I discovered academic psychology, at first I thought this was a great thing and I was going to do everything by the book of psychology and then I would be happy all the time. But then I, I was quite disappointed and saw that um, uh, didn't always work when you followed the 
the studies. In it. So that's what motivated me to look further. Now, my primary career, I taught international management for 25 years. And I had the opportunity to take early I, at, at universities. Uh, I had the opportunity to take early retirement. And uh, this allowed me to devote all of my time to this understanding of the animal brain. And because of studying international management, I had been in a lot of countries and studied a lot of different cultures. And I could see that everywhere people had the same problems. As much as we like to people blame like this culture or that culture, but like people have the same problems everywhere. And that just shows how how much uh, power the animal part of our brain is and how universal it is. Mm, yeah, that's amazing to hear because, you know, it, it seems like there's been a lot of, um, you know, twists and turns and changes throughout your career as well for you to get here. And, you know, I think it's uh, it's wonderful that you started out, you know, teaching and then now you're kind of doing more research and, and writing books. It's another form of teaching and you're just teaching more people, right? Yes. So I think that's wonderful. Now, right. uh, topic of today, we mentioned it before, it's about teamwork and well-being. Um, so obviously I know that, you know, uh, the work that you have been doing talks a lot about, you know, our animal brain, let's say. And um, I'm sure it has a correlation, uh, especially with teamwork, you know, how we collaborate. Um, and essentially, I think for all of us who, whoever is working in a team, you know, whether it be at university or after university, we're actually, you're actually doing a professional job. Um, teamwork is a crucial part of it, and it, it can affect our well-being um, to a certain degree. So, why this topic in particular for you uh, this time around? Because, you know, you could talk about anything, right? So I'm curious why you chose to talk about teamwork specifically. Sure. Uh, so what makes mammals different from other animals is that mammals usually stay in groups. And people have been taught this. And unfortunately, it's been kind of over-idealized. So this idea that you have this group and it's always around you and it feels good and it supports you. But in fact, it's a lot more complicated. In the animal world, they have a lot of conflict in their groups, but they can't leave the group because then they'd be eaten by a predator if they left. So uh, that's really a, excuse me, a, a complex decision that each animal is making in every moment. Do I want to trot off to greener pastures where I can eat in peace? but then a predator might eat me so then i feel scared so i go back to the group and i eat with the group where all the grass has been peed on quite frankly so mm. animals really um struggle back and forth with um uh sticking with the group mm -hmm. yeah that is such a great way to you know sort of get our brains to get ready for this topic you know because i think for a lot of people we only think about teamwork when we're at work or, you know, when we're doing a group assignment, for example. Uh, but I'm sure teamwork exists in so many different forms, um, just outside of that context. And um, like you said, you know, we're we're kind of like a pack uh, animal sort of uh, situation here. So it's really important for us to understand how to work well in teams. We're never just going to be always by ourselves. So this is interesting. We're going to get into the topic soon. Before we do that, we have this part where we get to know you a bit better by getting some of your recommendations. This part is called, Have You Met Loretta? So my first question to you, and this is what I ask all my guests. I really love asking this because I love reading. What is a book you would recommend? So am I allowed to recommend my own books? Absolutely. 
Sure. Okay. So you already mentioned the introductory book, Habits of the Happy Brain. Uh, but one of my more recent books is called Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop. So status games is when um, animals are always trying to be at the top of the group, like being the top monkey. And this feeling is so universal, and yet it's kind of taboo. So my book, Status Games, explains how we can all discover this feeling inside of us and manage it so that we can relax about it instead of getting set, upset about it all the time. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, I think that is uh, definitely an interesting read. I put that on my list. I was doing that. So, okay, I'll save that. Thank you for sharing. Uh, now, the second question I have is about a movie. What What is a movie you would recommend? Sure. So I watched this series called Montalbano. I don't know if people have heard of it, but um, the... It's, it's a movie length, but um, there are like 25 of them in the series because it's based on a series of mystery books and the author wrote about 25 books. So every one of them got made into a movie. And it was originally in Italian and it was aired by the BBC with subtitles. And what um, I discovered is like when I watched this, I was so relaxed. And the reason is because I have to read the English, but I listen to the Italian and it keeps my mind so busy that I can't worry about other things. And mm -hmm. so I just, I totally let go of everything else. And so yeah. I save these for when I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> oh, so beautiful that you have a go-to thing when you're in a bad mood. That's really great. Thank you for that. Now let's talk about a podcast. You're our podcast guest today, and I wonder which podcast you would actually recommend to our audience. Am I allowed to talk about my own podcast? Oh, absolutely. We would love okay. that. Okay, well, I have a podcast called The Happy Brain, and the guests I have on are people who exemplify the, the benefit of understanding your dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin, and how it works in your daily life, and I help people uh, understand these chemicals in themselves, but also I have many guests who have been like able to transform their emotions and ask them about how they did it. Oh, wow. That sounds wonderful. Like it, it gives me this happy boost in my brain already just listening about it. So yeah, I'll give it a listen for sure. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't know you had a podcast. The Happy Brain. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Uh, next question. Who is your role model? This could be a famous person, or if you would like a personal touch, um, it could be someone in your circle. Okay. Well, I was just writing today about Sigmund Freud, so I may as well use him. So I know that Sigmund Freud said a lot of things, and I don't agree with all of them, and nobody agrees with all of them. But he, a uh, couple of things. One is that he wouldn't give up trying to understand the nonverbal part of the brain, which is exactly what I'm always talking about, is this part that can't talk to you in words. And he got people to recognize that it was there because we like to believe our own words. We believe ourselves and we think, oh yeah, this is what I was thinking, but really your animal brain was thinking something else. So he sort of led people to look for that. And also um, his personal life, I read a lot about it and it was just interesting because it reminds you how life was pretty hard, like, you know, a hundred years ago. So it was just a good reminder of that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know much about him, to be honest, because uh, <laughs> that was never a part of my background in education. But um, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to have to read up on him now. Well, my new book um, that's coming out in January, it's called Why You're Unhappy, Biology mm. Versus Politics. And in the preface, I talk about how I was reading a biography of him yeah. when the pandemic struck. And so I just kept reading another biography and another biography, and I read 12 biographies of him and all. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a lot of biographies. And you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of different perspectives there. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. And, and interesting to learn about your book as well, your, your new book, Upcoming. You must be busy working on it. That sounds really fun. Um, so last question in this part is about learning. You know, obviously, I know you teach people a lot, but when, in the process of writing all your books, I'm sure you learn a lot too. Um, this question is specifically about a course though. So I wonder if you have any course you've completed that left a really strong impact on you that you would like to share with us. I see. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, after I retired, I became a docent at my local zoo. So a docent, maybe people have seen docent at museums where they tell you about things. And so I was a docent at the zoo and told Aww. people about animals. So it was really fascinating because we had both the practical, like of the animal behavior at the zoo, and then the theoretical and put them together. And I had never been a biology student myself. So it was really fabulous to learn. And the bottom line, like I said in the beginning, animals are quite competitive with each other. And it, they so it's fascinating to read about and learn about how competitive they are. Mm. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I think it's a it's a niche course, and you know, it's kind of like I I don't think anyone talks about that. I don't think I've met a lot of people that took such a course, but it makes a lot of sense provided your professional background. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Okay, that sounds cool. I should have explained that it's a real whole year-long course, so it's not just um, some little thing like a lecture. And it's not open to the public like a university, but it's open to anyone who would like to become a docent at their local zoo, so people could think about that. Oh, wow. That sounds like a like an inner club of some sort, you know? gotta be interested you're gonna be you know within the local area and then express interest that sounds cool okay but thank you so much for sharing that i find that fascinating and um, we've got to know you a bit better now for sure so let's talk about today's topic now that we've covered um, a lot of the background information of who you are i'm sure this is going to make a lot of sense where we talk about teamwork and well-being so the first question we always ask on the show is about well-being, obviously, because we want to start broad, set the scene, and well-being means different things to different people. So I wonder, what does well-being mean to you? Sure. So we feel good when our brain is releasing one of the chemicals whose job is to make you feel good. So those are dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. So these feel great, but they're four different feelings, and we want all of them. But the reality is they're not designed to be on all the time. It's not like your blood pressure, you know, where you have it all the time. But these chemicals are released in short spurts in very specific situations. And then they turn off. And so we're meant to have ups and downs of our happy brain chemicals all the time. And, excuse me, and yet, like we want them all the time. So then when they turn off, then 
for more. So well-being is a big part of it is self-acceptance to know that we're not meant to be at a peak experience every moment. And this is just the natural normal thing. Mm. Yeah, that is so true. And I feel like um, this is something we talk about all the time on the show, but it's still it's still going to take time for each of us to really embrace the concept because, you know, it's so hard to sit in unpleasant feelings, you know, when those chemicals are not on or not there. And, and you're just kind of like, how? why am I feeling funky? I hate this feeling. I don't want this, you know, and then um, we get a lot of reminders to actually do things that would bring out those chemicals, right? Like exercising is one of them. And we talk about that a lot on the show. Um, social connection is another one. And, you know, we, we don't do that enough nowadays, for example. So I'm sure, you know, in, the, in your line of work, when you're researching, you know, the happy brains and, ha- and these different chemicals, you probably have read up on research about people, you know, what they feel uh, and how they see well-being or even how they interact in their day-to-day. And there there are probably a lot of misconceptions about well-being that you probably have encountered. So I wonder what are some of the biggest ones that you notice people have? Sure. So the biggest one, of course, is the expectation that these chemicals should be on all the time. You should be happy every minute of every day. Um, And that other people get that normally every minute of every day, because other people do not. They have the same ups and downs that we all have. But um, I think it's very useful to understand the specific job of each of the chemicals, because um, the internet and academic world has embraced a kind of puppies and rainbows view of the happy brain chemicals. And it's just false from an animal perspective. So animals are always trying to get food and mating opportunity. And natural selection built a brain that rewards you with a good feeling when you see a way to get food and mating opportunity. So that's evolutionary biology. That's the way our brain is designed to work. Now, I'm not saying we should spend our whole lives looking for food and mating opportunity, but because food is more easily available today, we have so much energy left over to focus on other things, whereas our ancestors spent most of their waking life looking for food, water, firewood, safety from predators. So what else is there? Well, the other chemicals, um, oxytocin is the feeling of social trust, and serotonin is the feeling of social importance. So we want these, and if you watch nature videos, you see that animals want them too, but they have to be busy finding food first. But in our world, like you could spend your whole life driving yourself crazy, trying to find social trust and social importance because you already have access to food with so little energy. Yeah. So if you don't have like this sense of like a herd supporting you every minute, you may feel like something's wrong. If you don't feel like the top monkey every minute, you may feel like something's wrong. But nothing is wrong. This is just that these chemicals are only designed to turn on in certain moments which um, are relevant to that animal taking action to get the food or to get the mating opportunity. And when I say mating opportunity, you can watch David Attenborough videos, get the whole scoop. You could get it from every book on evolutionary psychology. But just to explain, it relates to everything that helps your genes survive. And that includes protecting the young so that they survive long enough that they have babies and keep your genes alive. 
So includes babysitting, nutrition, all of those things. Mm. Wow, fascinating. I think this is the first time we've uh, on this show that we've heard about this, you know, from from an animal brain perspective. And I think that's definitely uh, something to think about because um, I guess we kind of, uh, we observe animals, like you were saying, like watching David Anborough's, um documentaries and things like that, but we probably don't register the relationship that, that it has with, you know, us in real life. Um, and yeah, I think there are actually quite a few misconceptions out there uh, about well-being. It's just really good to look at things from this like chemical brain perspective, right? Because you have this all the time and you just probably don't pay attention enough. Um, and it's quite scientific as well. So that's that's the interesting part about this. Uh, so thank you for that. Now let's talk about teamwork. So you know, we've understood a little bit more about well-being and you know some misconceptions that people have, and um, it's all related to the different chemicals in the brain. Now, what about teamwork? Because uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, we probably think about teamwork when we are in a group project or when we are you know, at work, working with our colleagues. Uh, but I think it, it could be so much more than that. And because this is so much about you know, brain chemicals, well-being, how would you define teamwork in this context? Sure, I'll give you some uh, really fascinating animal example. So when baboons are attacked by a lion. If they stick together, they could chase the lion off. And very few animals fight back against a lion, but mm. baboons do. And they work together. And if they all work together, they can protect their babies from lions. Mm. But if a baboon is alone, then it's going to lose. And then the lion will eat all of its babies and its genes will not survive. But then there's another interesting example. Lions, they have a very hard time getting enough food to survive. Sometimes they go a week without catching anything. And then when they catch something, a group of hyenas will steal it. So lions have to stick with a group in order to chase off the hyenas. So animals are always making a careful calculation. Like when does it benefit me to stick with the group? And when does it not benefit me to stick with the group? And they pay a very high price to stick with the group. I, you know, I could go on and on. It's like different for every species, but there's a real cost or downside to sticking with the group. And people could think about that in their daily lives. It's like it's sort of frustrating when you feel pressure to go along with the herd and you wish you could do your own thing. And yet, you know that if you just left the group that maybe you would do poorly in some other aspects. So you're weighing the costs and benefits. And it's frustrating because we think, well, why can't it just be easy? Why can't I have both? And so the way I explain it to myself is every animal is capable of weighing those costs and benefits. So my brain is capable of weighing those costs and benefits. And I can have confidence in my own decisions and say, one minute it's good for me to go my own way and another mm. minute it's good for me to follow the group. And I'm always making that decision with confidence. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point because I guess, you know, in the context of, let's say, work, um, professional work, we are uh, in situations where we're kind of in between, should I do this by myself or should I do this with my team, right? And um, similarly, in, in group projects, I hear this from students a lot because I, you know, I interact with a lot of uni students uh, and they're kind of like, oh, another group project, I'll probably just end up doing it by myself because my team's not going to do anything. So. Yeah. 
That's yeah. exactly what you were kind of saying earlier. Is it a good decision to do this by myself or with others? And sometimes you, you don't really have the, a choice, uh, but then you can still make a change um, in that scenario, I think, because it's kind of like that um, animal instinct being protective of, you know, in, in this scenario, probably not your baby per se, or the, you know, the babies in the herd, uh, but protecting something else. And I think that's that's quite the fascinating part. Um, and a lot of the time, we just kind of like try to run away from that frustration of having to deal with others, right, in teamwork, uh, because we're protecting our sanity, perhaps. And we know that the outcome is going to be better sometimes if we do it by ourselves. Um, but I think teamwork is still a very important part in our lives, especially as you said earlier, right? We have that instinct. We work together when when necessary so that we can, you know, bring out a, a good outcome, whether it be protecting others or protecting ourselves. So how would teamwork affect our well-being in general? Sure. So the animal brain is constantly aware of threats. So imagine like you're a gazelle and you're eating grass and a predator can come and eat you alive any minute. So whenever a gazelle sees that it's alone, it has to constantly watch for predators, and that uh, makes it hard to eat. Mm. But when a gazelle is surrounded by the herd, then it can just relax and let down its guard. Mm -hmm. So that's the feeling we're really looking for is, oh, I can relax and let down my guard because I have these others around me and I trust them to protect me. The bottom line is that that that's a sort of a, that's selfish. Like I want you to protect me from a predator, and yeah. that's how the animal brain works. So there has to be something in it for you, mm. <laughs> in order for you to protect me, and I'll protect you. So this is mutual trust or reciprocal alliances. Yeah. And a fascinating example with um, baboons again is. Um, you probably see pictures of monkeys grooming each other's fur. And I groom your fur and you groom my fur. So we would like to think that it's always this nice one-to-one -one exchange. But mm -hmm. researchers have gone out and observed monkeys and they say, no, that when I give you a grooming, that you don't give me a grooming in return. You mm -hmm. may give me something else in return. Like you may favor me um, when a predator strikes or when there's extra food or mating season. So in every moment, I am uh, trying to build social alliances, but if I expect immediate reciprocation, I'm not going to get them, and then I'm not going to have any social alliances. So again, I tell myself, you know what? Even a monkey can like wait a little bit before it gets reciprocation, yeah. so I can do that too. Yeah, that's interesting. And how would that apply to, let's say, a uh, a teamwork situation with, uh, you know, uh, professionals? Because, you know, this this can kind of manifest a bit differently compared to the animals being in herds and things like that. Sure. So when you're working on a team with other people, you have your priorities, but they have their priorities. Mm -hmm. So a way of um, teamwork is I'm going to honor their priorities temporarily and trust that in the future they will honor my priorities. Mm -hmm. And in that sense that you build a bond through positive expectations and the positive expectations come from your own actions because I am providing to this other person the support that they want. So now they have positive expectations about working with me. 
Yeah, so that relies a lot on trust as well, right? Because uh, sometimes it, it's hard, um, especially for humans. I think for animals, it might be slightly different because the caveat in, in humans is that we have emotions, we have uh, biases, and uh, sometimes we have a lot of different influences. So being in a team and being able to rely on others is actually the best thing ever. And, you know, we probably would let our guard down and have a bit more, I would say, freedom in, in how we think and how we behave. But in some situations, and, and I'm sure people can relate with this, uh, there would probably be teams where they don't feel safe to be around. So, you know, let's say the animals, um, if they are uh, with their, um, uh, I don't know, uh, let's say a, a baboon, with the other baboons, it's like, okay, I'm safe. You know, like I have uh, I have my uh, fellow baboons here. But in the human context, it's a little different because sometimes we look around, we're like, oh, I've got my team here, but this person is trustworthy and the other person is not trustworthy. So it's kind of like a mixed feelings compared to that of animals, right? So No, no, this is how, excuse me, but um, in <laughs> animals, it's also mixed. That's what ah, I was saying okay. before about there's a bad side to being with the group for animals, mm -hmm. and that's why they're always weighing it. So mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Um, gazelles, when you see a herd of gazelles, so every gazelle is trying to push its way to the center mm -hmm. because the predator is going to eat the gazelles around the edges. So they're all trying to push their way to the center. Mm -hmm. um, so you may have been on teams with people where you felt like everybody else was just trying to push their way into the position of advantage. Yeah. And in fact, when gazelles get old, they no longer have the strength to push to the center effectively. So they get stuck out on the edges and they are more in danger. Mm. Um, but they don't leave the herd because okay. um, they'd be worse off without it. So we can't get the optimal position every minute, I guess. Yeah. Now, another more striking example that you may have heard about, wolves. So once again, you hear about a pack of wolves and we mostly get the, you know, puppies and rainbows view of a pack of animals. But in reality, oh, every wolf is uh, every wolf pack is dominated by an alpha pair, an alpha male and an alpha female, and they prevent all of the other wolves from reproducing. So all those other wolves never get to go near a mating opportunity. They have to spend their whole life finding food to support the children of the alpha pair. So they're not really getting a good deal, and they would rather leave. But if they leave, um, the wolf environment is so harsh that it's very hard to find enough food if you're alone. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like the cliche of like, if you could get one other person, like, hey, you want to leave with me? You know, when you build trust with another person and start your own group, you could see how humans always do this. But um, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a constant weighing and calculating mm -hmm. because the animal brain focuses first on meeting its own needs. Mm -hmm. And it's it's hard work to build the kind of alliance where you feel that y you are going to get something out of it. Fascinating. I'm learning so much about animals today, you know, um, and learning about ourselves. And this is this is interesting because I think we, again, don't pay attention to this very often. And uh, even if we watch a lot of documentaries, we probably don't relate it with, you know, 
us in real life, actual situations where it's kind of actually similar. Now you're getting me to think about all the, you know, David Attenborough documentaries I've watched. Uh, perhaps I should watch them again and kind of see them through this perspective that you just shared. This sure. Is really and especially if you watch the older ones, because yeah. the new ones are all puppies and rainbows. But if you watch the older series of David Attenborough, he tells you exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, perfect. Okay, this is really interesting. Um, so let's talk a bit more about teamwork with, you know, collaboration with conflict. Um, and I'm sure you probably will give us some really fascinating examples related to the the animals as well. Um, but when it comes to our well-being, right, in, in a team, when we work with others, there there's there's bound to be conflicts. This is without a doubt, whichever group you're in, no matter if it's, this is the best group you've ever worked with, there will be conflicts. And um, we know that conflicts are not necessarily all bad. I'm sure we have heard about this before. Um, it kind of helps us to navigate through a lot of different things and you know gain perspectives and things like that. Um, but the way that we handle the conflicts, it's very important. So how can, you know, handling this, the disagreements or the conflicts um, positively influence this side of our well-being. Sure. So it's important to understand the chemistry of the bad feeling that's triggered by conflict. I've been talking a lot about good feelings, but if we talk about bad feelings, it's very simple. So our brain, you could think it has two gears, like going forward and reverse. It goes forward when it sees a reward, and it goes in reverse when it sees a threat. So forward is a good feeling chemical and reverse threat is a bad feeling chemical. So when you have conflict, it's because you perceive this other person as a threat. And what are they threatening, even if it's not anything really um, specific, is they're threatening your ability to go forward toward rewards. So you may think, oh, I'm going to get a promotion this year. But then if this person in your group doesn't do a good job, then you feel like it's a threat to your promotion. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that triggers the survival threat chemistry of your brain. So even though you're not consciously thinking that your survival is threatened, it triggers that same chemical as when a gazelle smells a predator. So here's this person, maybe you have lunch with them every day, but like if they don't do their part of the job and you fear not getting your your promotion, like it's triggering your survival threat feelings. So that's so important to understand that this is not a factual evidence about the world, but this is your own chemistry, that your own chemicals, that you have released them with your own thoughts. Now, the other tremendous thing is our brain is not born hardwired. It's wired from early experience. We have a lot of neuroplasticity when we're young. So whatever happens when you're young, that builds the highway system in your brain. So the conflicts you had when you were young, that built the highways in your brain that tell you how, when to see conflict, how to react to it, when to turn on the bad feeling chemical. So this is a real physical pathway. And if you look at like the people who upset you, and you think about your childhood and you look for like, what were the conflicts in my life? You could see that there's like an exact match between your like frustration and those early experiences. So then you have to stop and say, I triggered this bad feeling myself with my own neural pathway. And um, cortisol, this bad feeling, 
is like paving on your neural pathway. It's really good at building a road in your brain fast. That's how you know not to touch a hot stove. Mm -hmm. So even though you're not consciously thinking of your childhood, this situation has triggered the pathways that you built during the conflicts of your childhood. Mm. That's, yeah, I think that's definitely something to ponder upon more because I don't think when we are handling a certain kinds of conflict, we would think about, oh, how was this handled in my childhood, right? We're just thinking for the best solution at the moment. And I think that's where um, our levels of well-being might be impacted because we are just looking at the situation at hand without relating it to our own experiences and backgrounds and how it's affecting our biases. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's fascinating. So what about you know examples of uh, the, the the bad side of it? So this could be you know a lack of teamwork. It could be a toxic team. I think you touched on this briefly before, where you know sometimes in situation certain situation you don't feel safe in that particular team, or you know like the the gazelles in their own herd, for example. Um, so how can that affect our mental and emotional well-being, especially you mentioned quite a few different chemicals, right? I'm sure you can relate this to the chemicals in our brains. Sure. Um, so no one is consciously aware that they are triggering these chemicals or that they're triggering them with neural pathways built from early experience. So nobody thinks that consciously. And that's why everyone's emotional response is sort of a mystery to them. And that's why we all go around like reproducing the same kind of situations we had when we were young as much as we wish that we weren't. Now, the amazing thing is that not only do we don't see it in ourselves, but we may see it in other people. So we think, why is this other person creating so much drama? Mm. And if you could get that person to talk about their past experience, you would see that the drama there creating today like matches exactly. Um, and a, a simple example is whenever you hear yourself use the word always, like this always happens to me, you mm. know, or that always happens. Yeah. That's when you know that this is a real pathway in your brain. And so each person feels like their own survival matters. And when you have your stress pattern, your conflict pattern triggered, you feel like it's a threat to your survival. You see other people as a threat to your survival and they're doing the same. Yeah. That they're seeing you as a threat to their survival. Mm -hmm. So it's really necessary for each person to take responsibility for their own emotions and to be honest with themselves about how they're creating their own emotions rather than always saying you did this and you did that and you did that. Mm. That's that's true. I think it's such a good perspective to look inwards first, right? Because in these situations, sometimes we internalize things that aren't even there. And I think this this happens to a lot of uh, different kinds of conflict where you just kind of go, why is this person doing this to me? But then in reality, it's not about what they are doing to you. It's just about the situation at hand, especially in the context of, um, you know, uh, let's say a task. It's about the work. It's not about, you know, you personally. Um, and I think a lot of the time we kind of take things personally. Um, and this is probably unavoidable because as, as you were saying earlier, right, like we have this instinct to protect ourselves. And so uh, we think about ourselves first whenever a situation happened and we don't think about the critique or the feedback as, okay, this is just about the, the work. It's not about you at all, you know? Um, and I think that's where a lot of um, organizations or um, even 
you know, like friendship groups, they would have the activities for team bonding or bonding so that they can improve this collaboration, reduce conflicts, or at least manage conflicts a bit better. So we know that there are so many kinds of team building activities out there. Um, you know, this could be in, in any context, professional, social. How can these activity actually help to contribute to the physical health, you know, not, not just the, the mental health side of thing, but both physical health and mental health of the, the well-being of the team members. So um, it creates positive expectations. And that's what we need because positive expectations are real physical pathways in your brain. So like if you and I work together and we reach a goal, then reaching the goal stimulates our dopamine and that builds my dopamine pathway. And I'm going to say, well, when I, when I work with Lou, I have a good feeling. I have a positive expectation that we are going to reach the goal. Yeah. And th again, that's a real physical pathway. And if you, if sometimes it's easier to get the ball rolling outside of a work situation, which is why you see these team building exercises where maybe people build a tower together or something. <laughs> yes. So it's the importance is that positive expectations are real physical pathways in your brain that turn on the happy chemicals more easily yeah. and the happy chemicals make you feel good. And mm. you you don't know that you have power over them, but this is your power is by building positive expectations. Yeah, definitely. And I think another aspect of it as well is, you know, the environment in itself, right? Um, I think when we have these different team building activities, it can definitely help, like you were saying, to create that positive expectations. I think it connects us as well, because we, when we see these people, we're like, oh, okay, I know who they are outside of work. I know them better. And, and so I can trust them. I, I trust them more freely, or, you know, I would have a good experience working with them. And that's really good. But sometimes, even when we do have these activities, the situation or conflicts or, you know, the way we feel in that teamwork situation might not improve because of the environment. And that's where, you know, there's this concept that's been floating around quite a bit recently about psychological safety that's been kind of, um, I, I think it's been talked about a bit more, but um, I'm not sure about the research behind it or, you know, how it actually manifests um, because it can really promote well-being when we do have that psychological psychological safety at work. I think I read this in Leaders Eat Last um, by Simon Sinek, where he mentioned this, you know, aspect of psychological safety. So I wonder from your research and, and your observation, what would be um, the caveat that you notice? You know, how can this concept of psychological safety in teams actually help to improve well-being? Sure. Um, well, because it's a team, it has to work for everyone. So if you have one person that is constantly finding fault with everyone and saying, I'm not safe because of you. I'm not safe because of you. You're making me feel unsafe. You're making me feel unsafe. And then everyone on the team is just trying to please that one person rather mm -hmm. than focusing on the work task. And they're never going to uh, feel safe. And that one person is never going to feel safe because they get so much power by mm. condemning others. So it's really, I think, important that um, sometimes this concept of psychological safety is oversimplified in a way that can be weaponized, let's say. So um, it's important that uh, it's not just like one person 
that gets to tell everyone else what you need to be this way in order for me to feel safe. Um, I'm just thinking of like a, a sort of a, an, an example would be like a simple situation. If we're having a dinner party for 12 people and people want to say, oh, do you have any special dietary needs? Yeah. And this one person gives a list of 10 needs. And so the whole group of 12 can only eat what that person can eat. So yeah. it's um, it's important to know that the urge for social dominance is a natural part of the mammalian brain. And this uh, urges in everyone all the time. And yet we have to learn safe ways to express it. Mm. And it's so tempting to to get this social importance in whatever way uh, sort of comes along easily. So it's important to say, well, everyone in the group needs to have this sense of social importance, not just the people who are going to um, assert it most loudly. Mm -hmm. And again, that social importance and then social support, they're, they're different. They're oxytocin and serotonin, two different feelings. Yeah, that is very interesting. And you, you started to get me to think about how this works in reality, because each team is very different. We have, you know, very different people working together. We might have, you know, new people coming on board as well. And then we have that certain set level of psychological safety and, you know, new people coming in can completely change that, you know, for the better or actually for the worse. So I think in my mind right now, it, it, it kind of goes, this psychological safety plus teamwork, they need to go hand in hand in the sense that, you know, you, you cannot have one without the other. Teamwork will fail without psychological safety. Um, and psychological safety can actually enhance, um, make or break teamwork, depending on how, how strong it is in a certain context. And you were giving that example of uh, the dinner party. It's such a, a simple thing and it happens to all of us, right? And then, and then this can be translated to work as well. It happens to all of us. And I think the ex exercises you mentioned before, you know, when we, when we discussed um, team building exercises, that could really be a good start. But I think psychological safety in the context of work would be so much more than that. It, it takes leadership. It takes, you know, strategy of an organization to actually help people to feel that psychological safety because perhaps um, there's uh, not really clear guidance or, you know, there's not really clear, um, I would say, strate strategic approaches to see, okay, how are we actually developing psychological safety for, for these people to collaborate together? It's often so, overlooked. I would say that psychological safety is a learned skill mm -hmm. and um, we're not born with it. Mm -hmm. um, like children have to learn to trust their parents to feed them because children can't feed themselves. Yeah. But then children maybe can't tr trust their parents all the time. So then they have to learn over time, okay, I'll have to take some responsibility for myself. So mm -hmm. we're always making decisions about when do I rely on others to make me feel safe and when do I take responsibility for my own safety. Yeah. So um, it's uh, each person has to, um, if, you, if you're only blaming the group for your lack of feelings of safety, then it it's a need to build that skill that understands that oh, I've created my sense of safety or unsafe inside myself. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it takes it takes both sides. 
and you know for for people that are i think a little less experienced in in this area of being in different kinds of teams right it might be harder for them because it's as you said it's a learned skill so the more environments we get exposed to the more we can learn about it so it will be a really good thing to start thinking about because when you mentioned that dinner party example i was kind of thinking oh okay we can actually learn from all situations all kinds of situations to improve this psychological safety um, the culture of the group is important but we can also learn how we navigate it ourselves because you know that person can dominate the group but we can also stand up for ourselves right to create that safety for ourselves where we say okay i understand you have the, the uh, these different dietary requirements how about we find a place You can enjoy the dietary requirements you want, but we can also enjoy ourselves. So, you know, meet halfway um, somehow. And I think that's important because sometimes we compromise compromise a lot. Um, I think it, it goes back to childhood for sure when you were saying, oh, do we rely on others or do we just learn this, do this ourselves? And it's hard actually for, for, for a lot of people to trust others. So, yeah. yeah. And by the way, that, that dinner example, it happened to me in real life. You know? Really? Yeah. How did you navigate yeah. that? I just had to eat scrambled eggs and rice because, oh. yeah, that's all the person could eat. And the person who was running the group just accommodated every single demand of that person. Hmm. And so they it was a Chinese dinner, but like it, it was just all like plain rice, plain eggs, plain celery. It was terrible. So oh, I, wow. I was a voluntary group and I had a temporary need for that group. And then I just stopped going. Oh, no, <laughs> no psychological was, um, safety. I was giving a talk in Spanish. So this was a group to practice speaking Spanish. And yeah. after my talk, I was like, I don't need this group anymore. Yeah. Wow. That sounds tough. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing to think about. How could we have navigated that better? Obviously, it it you know the person that was running the the dinner thing was in charge of it. But what else could we have done, right? That's also another thing to think about. Yes, it's true. It's true. And um, in the future, I could have privately discussed with other individuals and and created some ground rules. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, it, that's why I say we're always weighing. In this case. Was it yeah. worth my effort? Because I didn't really have enough of a connection to that group anyway. So that's what we're mm. always weighing mm. the costs and benefits. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, and we're always learning, right? Even yourself, you're talking about this topic, but you also share that you you learned yourself and you are learning, which is the most important part, I think, that we need to look at um, any any concepts ever, um, especially when it comes to our well-being. Like we're always learning, always improving. Ah, that's good. Okay, so last question in this part is about some real life examples. So um, we would love to know from your perspective, if you know of any real life case studies or stories that can showcase how prioritizing teamwork can lead to, you know, better well-being. Because obviously, as you said, we are always weighing our own, you know, priorities, benefits, first and foremost, but uh, we also know that it can positively impact our well-being. So when when does prioritizing teamwork actually benefit us the most sure um well i i can i give you a monkey example that i think is very easy to relate to so i told Absolutely. you that this monkey is grooming the fur of another monkey you've probably seen images of that and this is very significant to monkeys it really does affect their health 
um, because they're so their fur doesn't get matted down and get infested with lice. So if I give you a grooming and you don't groom me back, then I may be disappointed. If I just give up and don't groom anybody, then I'm never going to get groomed and I'm never going to get reciprocal favors from others and I'm going to have a bad life. So researchers literally found that monkeys with more grooming partners and who took the initiative to make the overture, like I groomed you last week and you didn't groom my, me back, but I'm going to try to groom you again this week anyway. Okay. So is that you keep taking the initiative in small increments and over time you create positive expectations with a lot of people and you get more benefits over time. So you, you don't give up easily. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a great example. I think about my cats, you know, they, they groom each other and I'm like, huh, because sometimes you could just kind of notice that they're clumps on their fur and then that is because they cannot reach those areas. Um, and obviously they cannot groom their own heads. So, you know, when they groom each other, it's a way of, uh, you know, them showing affection to each other, but also really, you know, helpful in that sense, teamwork, right? Uh, let's groom each other and clean each other. That's really good. And then you also got me to think about real life, like in, in terms of work between people, because now that I thought about it, you know, sometimes we are not great at certain areas or we're kind of hesitant to do certain things um, in a team. And then we can find that strength in other people. And then at the same time, we have certain strengths that they don't have. So then instead of, you know, trying to figure it out by ourselves, when we discuss, you know, what we can do, we can actually exchange ideas, ask for help where relevant, so that we, we both help two people, they can help each other out, or even in a bigger group context, dividing and conquering, right? There might be 10 things to do. Each person would take one that is most suitable for them. And then the whole group benefits from that. So actually, that's a really good way to look at it. Yes. And again, when you make an overture to help someone out, they don't necessarily help you out in the short run. But if you keep making overtures, then people will help you out in the long run. Yeah, it definitely takes a lot of time takes a lot of effort um, and I think maybe steps as well because um, even in um, let's just say teamwork with friends you know like I, I have this recently and I find it really fun because uh, I've been moving houses and then my friend's been helping me with the you know cleaning and moving and I'm just not used to having someone helping me that much but then I realized oh this has happened this way because over time we have actually built that trust and that positive you know reinforcement um, through helping each other out with little things first, not the big things, right? It just like you said, it starts small and then it builds up. And I'm like, oh, actually teamwork, that, that's really good. Nice. Yeah, awesome. Okay. Um, now that I've thought about this topic, I'm like, ah, it doesn't just apply to work situation. It actually applies to real life more than we think. And so thank you so much for sharing this. I think it's um, definitely a good reminder to our audience to look at this from a different perspective, because I think we we kind of all see teamwork as this thing that is kind of like, oh, it only happens at work. No, it actually happens in real life too. And it's quite important. Um, so now that we've covered the theoretical part of it, let's talk about something more practical that you do and you can recommend to our audience. Um, so obviously, you know, I'm sure you've worked with teams, um, publishing books, you probably work with a lot of people. Um, what would be a practice that you do personally to foster teamwork and positive collaboration? Sure. Uh, so first is um, 
we really have to define the collaboration from the other person's perspective. So normally when you try to help someone, you end up giving them what you wanted, but it's not really what they want or what they value. So mm -hmm. I think the first thing is really thinking about what does this other person need and what would be helpful to them. And then um, taking small steps toward doing that because like if you think you're going to rescue someone, you're really not helping them in the long run. So uh, I always focus on making small overtures toward a person, but often. Yeah. And um, small overtures that feel natural and comfortable. So it doesn't mean spending a lot of money on them, but um, helping them in some very small way. And um, another thing is like putting this on the calendar or setting an alarm to do it every day, like with a different person, because otherwise you'll just always feel too busy. And you could do it in 60 seconds. You could say, you know, I'm going to have my little alarm and I'm going to spend 60 seconds reaching out to a person. You could do it twice and have 60 seconds twice and reach out to offer a grooming to another person. Ah, offer grooming. I love that. That's such a that's such a nice thing to say. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a it's a good practice because um, I think sometimes for me I've noticed it's kind of hard to seek help because I feel like I need to help them first. But then I also think about it in a different way. Once they have helped me out, I can also offer help back. And then by this point, they are probably going to be more comfortable helping me because they have helped me. Uh, sorry, accepting my help because they have helped me. Because maybe the way I think is exactly how they think as well. They don't. They haven't asked for help because, you know, this has ha this hasn't happened before. So sixty seconds. That's really good. Nice thing. Yeah, I'm going to try that. Thank okay. you. Um, and, and there's another practice I use. Um, again, you can use an alarm 60 seconds a day yeah. is to notice your own oxytocin feeling. So oxytocin is this feeling of having the support of others protecting mm -hmm. you and allowing you to lower your guard. Yeah. Now, we are good at like pointing fingers at other people and saying, well, you didn't support me. But really, we create the feeling inside ourselves. So if I think that nothing you do is good enough, then I'm never going to feel supported. So we have to build that neural pathway by looking for moments in our day when we felt protected and say, oh yeah, that was nice of that person to support me in that moment. Maybe sometimes it's just eye contact and a smile, or sometimes they gave you that tiny little thing that you needed at that moment. Mm -hmm. And then when you focus on that, it builds your neural pathway to have that positive feeling more easily. Otherwise, your brain is always going to go to this one disappointed me, that one disappointed me, that one disappointed me. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. I think it's such a good thing, not just in the context of improving the teamwork, a spirit, a collaboration, but also improves our well-being massively because it sounds to me like that's counting our blessing, you know, that gratitude list. But um, instead of just looking at good things that happen um, you look at good things that happen from good people and you know that's actually um, i think it boosts our well-being in a lot of ways because social connections as i said before is one of the most important aspects of well-being that we talk about all the time yes 
Fascinating. Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing that practice. And now that we have also covered the practice, let's talk about you. Before we let you go, we have a section called Open Mic where you can talk about anything you're passionate about. It could be about the topic or it could be about something entirely different. The floor's all yours, Loretta. Go for it. Thank you. Well, I always like to make sure that I talk about social comparison because the animal brain is always making social comparisons. And so we have inherited a brain that's always making social comparisons. And people may find themselves having negative reaction to their social comparisons. And then they don't realize that they created this this negative reaction inside themselves. But instead they say, you are looking down at me, you are putting me down, you are trying to make me feel bad. So it's so important. And again, David Attenborough and my book Status Games and so many good sources of information. I have a reading list on my website of like how the monkey brain is always looking for that opportunity to be the stronger monkey because that's how it gets more food and mating opportunity. If it's the weaker monkey, if it grabs for a banana, the stronger monkey will bite it and that will trigger its stress chemicals and wire it to say, whoa, I'm, I'm afraid to reach out for a banana. So we have to build up that neural pathway that says, I have confidence in my own strength so I can get enough bananas to survive. So that's mm-hmm. really the feeling we want to have. That's really the serotonin feeling. And um, you really have to work to build that skill because otherwise you're just going to focus on like you're feeling like a weak little monkey that never gets the banana. Uh, oh, what a wonderful message to close with. I really like that. It's such a positive thing to think about. Um, and I think it's also a nice reminder to all of us because we do this all the time. <laughs> Even if you know we're good at saying it out loud, we probably are not good at practicing it as much. So thank you for sharing that. And for our audience that would like to find out more about your work or you know maybe uh, get in touch with you about a collaboration, where should they go? Sure. So my website is innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And I have a free five-day happy chemical jumpstart where you get one email a day for five days when you put in your email address and one email explaining each of the five chemicals. And I also have lots of free resources and videos and details about all of my books. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for being here as well. Uh, It's been a really interesting learning curve for me today to think about, you know, lots of different things that animals do that we can learn from. Um, And I'm sure our audience have too. Um, It's, I think it's a new perspective on teamwork. You know, it is a new take because we talk, I think we've talked about teamwork quite a bit um, on this show and on some other shows at LMSI. And it's always about like, okay, how do humans function? But when you think about it, we can learn a lot from how animals function too. So um, thank you for being here. And hopefully we'll have you back some other time to talk about some other things that animals do that we can learn from. Thank you. That would be great. And then thank you for the great questions. You have been listening to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by the Wellbeing Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website, we.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Lungo. Thanks for tuning in.